Turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. In the New Testament scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. And for our message today, we'll consider verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15 is a classic chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that impacts us today. So 1 Corinthians 15 will be our consideration. And I will read now from verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's call on him and ask for his help as we come now to his word. Let's pray once again. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for Jesus Christ, the living word made known to us here in the inspired word. And we bless you because you bless us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you've destined us in love to be your sons and daughters in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And you freely bestowed your grace upon us and made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of your will, your plan, to unite all things in Christ. And you've sealed us with the Spirit for the day of redemption. So our simple prayer is that those blessings would be evident now. As we look into your word, we'd see them at work within us, especially the giving of wisdom to understand your word and to obey it. And you bless this time now as we continue to joyfully celebrate the resurrection of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Israel finally crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land, you may remember a whole generation had to wait for that. The Lord commanded them to take 12 stones from the river. He split the waters like he did at the Red Sea. And he said, you take 12 stones from the riverbed there and you set them up on the border as you cross and enter the land. And those 12 stones will be a memorial. People will see them. And in the future, their children will ask, what do these stones mean? Maybe you've ever traveled or visited another city or place and your children ask you, why is that that way? Who built that? What were they trying to say? That was the point of the memorial stones. Future generations will say, what do they mean? And then their parents could tell them the story of how God saved them 
how he brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea and the Jordan River on dry ground. What God did in the past would have significance for the future. They'd retell that story for years to come and future generations would know. And Joshua, or excuse me, I think it's Judge, no, Joshua even makes a point, even the ends of the earth will know this story. Well, today we celebrate Easter. The day Jesus rose again from the dead, Resurrection Sunday. We retell a story that has been told for many years and in many places. And in telling this story again, this central story of the Christian faith, we not only celebrate what God did then, but we rejoice in what God is doing now and what he will do in the future. And how so, you may ask? How does then affect the now and the future? Well, according to this passage, the verses we've just read, the resurrection of Jesus Christ sets in motion certain things that must come to perfection. When God rolled the stone away from the tomb, he started rolling a boulder downhill. And that boulder is going to roll until it reaches its culmination, until it brings something to perfection. According to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus, it's a down payment. And there is a future payoff coming. And one of those blessings is that all who are connected to Christ, everyone who is saved by faith, spiritually connected to Jesus Christ, they will experience their own glorious bodily resurrection. And that may be something we celebrate. I don't think there's too many people in here who would struggle with that doctrine or deny that. But actually, it's something the Corinthians were denying. You see, sometimes when people explain 1 Corinthians 15, they say, oh, the Corinthians were denying the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul never actually says that. What he says is verse 12. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, period? The resurrection of Christ, that's part of the gospel message. Paul says when he opens the chapter, this is what I preached and you received it. You've taken your stand on this. By this message, you are saved. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But when it came to the general resurrection of the dead, their future bodily resurrection, the Corinthians were in doubt. And that may be because they had bought into the Greek philosophy that the body is bad and needs to be discarded. Or maybe they just drew the wrong conclusion from Paul's teaching about the spirit. You know, this is the age of the spirit. You're spiritual people. Well, maybe they thought, well, then the body gets left behind. Body stuff doesn't matter anymore. Whatever the reason is, Paul writes this beautiful chapter, classic chapter, to argue that since Christ rose from the dead... All who are connected to him, you will rise from the dead. And in the verses that we've read today, Paul says, here's why that's a big deal. Here's why that is significant for you, both now and in the future. So let's use our time this Easter morning to answer the question, what does Christ's resurrection promise us today? And we'll see from the passage, it promises us three things. First, freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. 
freedom from the power and penalty of sin. Verse 20 gives us the main idea. This controls the whole passage. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul asserts the resurrection of Christ. He claims that it actually happened, a historical fact. He says, if that didn't happen, pack the whole church thing up, go home, party Saturday night, nothing matters. Don't don't waste your time with a fake in-between Christianity. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope. But he did rise from the dead. Paul asserts, he preached it to the Corinthians. They believed it. They're taking their stand on it. So now Paul will challenge them. Accept the implications of Christ's resurrection. If Christ rose from the dead, then here's what that means for you. And by the way, for Paul to claim that, for Paul to believe that, that is very different from how Paul and most Jews once thought of resurrection. You know, sometimes we think of the whole ancient world as, man, they would just believe anything. Well, just read the Gospels. People seem pretty surprised when people come back from the dead. That shocked them too. And Paul and most Jews in his day did not expect to see resurrection in their lifetime. Now, they thought they'd see it in the future. If if they charted out for you how they thought of the end times, they would say, right now is the time of tribulation. And one day God will appear, and that will be the time of salvation. That's when all the dead will rise based on, say, Daniel 12, which reads, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And they trusted that if they suffered faithfully, if they were the righteous ones that suffered, then God would reward them with eternal life on the last day. But no one, no one expected that one righteous man would return from death in the middle of time. That is what God did when he raised his son from the dead on the first Easter when he vindicated his son as the righteous one who committed his soul to God and suffered faithfully unto death. And that's why Paul says the resurrection of Christ, that's the first fruits. That's just the first part of the harvest that guarantees the coming of the full harvest. And I think we need to ask ourselves this question. What made Paul rethink resurrection that way? Unless some might say, well, he was just a loose cannon. He was a heretic. All the Jews who became Jesus followers learned to think of the resurrection in this way. It became the new way of thinking about resurrection. And I think we have to ask, what foot could have left such a giant footprint? I think it is perfectly reasonable to conclude that Jesus actually rising from the dead is the event that caused such a radical change. And so now, because Jesus has risen first as our representative, everyone who's connected to him is promised certain benefits. Just notice how 4 begins, verses 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. Paul looks at human history and he summarizes it 
in terms of two men. There's Adam and there's Christ. And that's why we talk of them as being representative figures. Through Adam's sin, death came to all human beings. But now, through Christ's death and resurrection for sin, life comes to everyone connected to him. And there's two things to consider here. First, your future resurrection, your future hope, they are promised through Christ. The same kind of connection that exists between Adam and humans. We don't seem to doubt the reality of that connection, do we? We see wickedness. Well, it's the same kind of connection between you and Christ. So if death is inevitable because we were born in Adam, your future life, your life now and your bodily resurrection, it's inevitable because you're connected to Christ. And second, Paul focuses on bodily resurrection here, because that's the culmination of the whole work of salvation. I don't want to say it's the tip of the iceberg. That might make it sound like it's no big deal. But it's the culmination of the whole work. My point being, there's more to it than just physical resurrection. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't drop dead on the spot. The first thing they experienced was what? Guilt. Shame separation from God. They had severed that connection. And now they were spiritually corrupt and they were hiding. But through the work of Christ, God reverses every consequence of sin. He forgives you the guilt of sin. He restores your fellowship to him. He breaks sin's power over you. He gives you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness so that you can fellowship with God and walk with him. He purifies our hearts so that we can see God. He comforts you in all your distress. He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. And then one day, he will raise your body from the dead because Christ's resurrection promises us that freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. But there's more. Christ's resurrection also promises us security in the reign of Christ. Security in his reign. Now, I want you to follow Paul's train of thought here. First, in in verses 23 to 24, Paul's going to lay out a time frame. And we just talked about how Jews would have thought about the future, now and then. Well, Paul's taken that time frame, and he's tweaked it a little bit. Look at verse 23. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So we have the resurrection of Christ, that kicks things off. And then we have the return of Christ, which brings in the end, the end of human history and time as we know it. And then, notice this, between the resurrection and the return, you have the reign of Christ. Paul highlights this in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under 
his feet. Now, when is the last enemy placed under his feet? That's what Paul's anticipating in verse 24, the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. When Christ comes, the kingdom ends, so to speak. We go into eternity. But he's going to reign until that time. And as verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So I hope that's not too clunky. But but the big idea is this. Christ's resurrection kicks off Christ's reign. He's putting his enemies under his feet. Then he will return and subdue the last enemy, death. And that is then the end. Now, why is this a big deal, other than the fact that maybe it just perfectly matches a a nice scheme of, of the end times? But why is it a big deal beyond that? First, it helps us rightly understand exactly what it means for Jesus to be king. You see that language of Putting Christ's enemies under his feet. That's taken from Psalm 110. One, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That was Israel's hope, that God would come and reign. And Paul says, Israel, your hope, and Gentiles, your hope, it's actually taking place now. God's Messiah is subduing the nations to himself. A few weeks ago, we considered Romans 1, verses 4 and 5, that says Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. King Jesus is sitting on his throne. And he is calling the nations, he's calling them to obey the faith. That's how he is using his authority. He used it on you and on me when he subdued your heart to repent, when God took charge of your heart and brought it to the point where you repented of your sins and you confessed your faith in the gospel. When you acknowledge, I've been going the wrong way, but now I have a new master And I'm going to submit to him. That is Jesus' kingly authority being exercised over you. So that's what it means for Jesus to be in charge right now. But second, understanding Jesus' reign helps us understand what it means to be citizens of his kingdom. See, Jesus' vision of the kingdom is rejected by Israel's leaders. But Jesus promised that his kingdom, though small and rejected, though it's a seed falling among thorns, though it's a seed falling among rocks or the path, it will triumph in the end. It will bring in a bountiful harvest. And so his kingdom citizens, you and me, we won't be known by our power and our greatness. But we will be known as the poor in spirit. As those who mourn, as the meek, as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. His people will be the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And friends, I'm telling you, that is good news 
Because that's a vision you can live out wherever you are this week. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you can live out that vision. If you're at school, work, retired, sick, traveling, or anything else, you can live out these virtues. You can be a citizen of the kingdom and model this wherever you are. You can be the employee or the employer that models mercy. You can be the student that models peacemaking. And your work, your hobbies, far from being, you know, insignificant or just, well, this is what God's has given me to do until he comes again. Far from those things being insignificant. When you do them God's way, when you do them as a citizen of his kingdom... You actually make God's world work the way it's supposed to. Now, I'm not going to overpromise you anything here. There will still be conflict. Why? The curse of sin is still here. The kingdom's begun, but it's not all the way come. There will be conflict in your life. There'll be conflict and frustration when you try to work. But life works better when lived God's way. And that is something you can do. As a citizen of his kingdom. Maybe you'll be around family today and they don't follow the Lord or they don't celebrate Easter. You can model the joy of being a part of God's kingdom and celebrating his reign. That may involve words. That may simply involve a disposition that shows trust, that shows joy, that shows peace. And that will be living as God's people. And lastly, understanding the reign of Christ, it gives you the security you need To wait for his return. Again, Christ must raise us from the dead to complete his saving purposes. Paul says there in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Only by raising us can Christ defeat the last enemy, death. Until he comes, there's still an enemy in Christ's kingdom. But one day. Jesus will back him into a corner and put him, or maybe I should say put us, out of our misery forever. And that will mean the end of present trials, reunion with those in Christ who have gone before. And that's something worth celebrating today. And so lastly, one last promise to consider. Christ's resurrection promises hope for a glorious future. Paul concludes in verses 27 and 28, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Those are pretty full sentences, so let me just try to streamline Paul's point. He is focusing on the reason Christ reigns now and what that ultimately leads to in eternity. So verse 27 makes the point, God the Father, that is the one who appointed Christ to reign. The Father put everything under Jesus the Son's feet. Now we should probably ask, why did God have to appoint Christ to reign. I mean, isn't Christ sovereign because he's God? Doesn't he already reign? Well, he is. He does. But 
The reign that Jesus is carrying out now, it's a special reign. He fulfills it as the last Adam. Remember? Through Adam came death. Now through Christ comes life. Where Adam disobeyed and sinned, Christ obeys. So Christ is fulfilling the role that Adam was supposed to fulfill. And that is why Christ receives dominion or authority or reign. Adam lost it. Christ gets it back. Think Philippians 2. Christ humbled himself unto death. And so now God has highly exalted him. So follow me here. When the dead are raised, when he comes and completes his reign, the reign, the special reign, is no longer necessary. We go into the eternal state. And in the eternal state, God is supreme. Peter says we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In the new creation, God is all in all. There's no more opposition to God. And so therefore, the reign of the Son It's no longer in the forefront. Instead, God, the one God, the triune God, is fully supreme, without rival, and without opposition. That is why Paul uses this language of the Son being made subject to the one who put everything under him. Does that mean in the eternal state, the Son is subordinate to the Father? Maybe even with the implication that he was eternally subordinate before time? Not at all. This is why I said the triune God will be all in all. Because of his obedience unto death, Christ is now highly exalted. He's preeminent in God's saving purposes. When the saving purposes are complete, Christ yields the reign. And so God, the one God, the triune God, he is all in all. With salvation complete, God is supreme and glorified throughout eternity. And maybe that got a little thick, but here's here's what it means for you now. Here's why that's a big deal. If you hear nothing, hear this. What you see now is not the way things will always be. The death and resurrection of Christ have started something and that will come to consummation. You will rise from the dead. There will be new heavens and a new earth. God will be supreme. What has a hold on you today? Maybe a temptation, maybe a sin. What has that hold on you? It's not ultimate. Don't follow it. Don't serve it. What discourages you today? What worries you today? What troubles you today? Don't let it control you. Hope always lives on because of Christ's resurrection. And that's promised us today and in the future. So let's give thanks, and then we'll observe this Lord's table time together. Father in heaven, thank you for the mercies of God in Christ, and thank you for Jesus and his reign, and make us glad and joyful and confident and trusting and humble and meek, Troubled but not overcome, troubled but trusting, 
and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for the church here at Roebuck. Thank you for all these saints. And whatever our need may be today, wherever we need to hear your reassuring voice, speak and take this word and apply it to our hearts and send us out rejoicing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.